Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School, so listen, learn, enjoy and share. Anne Franca OBE is an outstanding business leader and an expert on the importance of gender balance in the workplace. She started her career at Procter & Gamble, then went on to hold senior executive positions at Boots, Mars, Yale and BSI. During the last eight years as CEO of the Chartered Management Institute, her work to highlight Britain's gender pay gap has won her critical acclaim. She passionately believes that the most productive businesses are those with the most diverse leadership. Anne Franca, Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. Delighted to be here. So, you've been a very high-profile CEO of the Chartered Management Institute, and I've heard you say the Institute is all about how to be a better boss, a better leader, perhaps. So, in your experience, what marks out a good leader? Well, it's a great question, Um, and uh, I think that there are uh, things that are the foundations of being a really good leader. And then I think that there are the classic behavioral traits that mark out a good leader. So in terms of the foundations, I think you really need to start from a place of both self-confidence and self-awareness. Um, self-confidence because, you know, you need to trust your own um, uh, instincts, uh, your own judgment um, and your own capabilities self-awareness because you really need to be aware uh, that you will impact others around you quite significantly as a result of your leadership position, whether those are peers or whether they're direct reports or indeed your own boss. So those are the two foundations for good leadership. But then there are a couple of other attributes that distinguish good leaders. One is empathy. So you have to be able to empathize with others put yourself in their shoes, see their point of view, and actually listen to their point of view. Another is decisiveness. So good leaders don't dither, they decide, right? And, you know, their view would be, even if it's the wrong decision, you can correct the decision. That's another attribute of good leaders. They admit when they've made a mistake and they learn from that mistake. So have you always been able to adhere to all this all this good practice? Well, put it this way, I've learned to adhere to much of it. And I've also been on the receiving end when people do not appear, adhere to it, right? So, so I've both learned from my mistakes as a leader and learned from leaders I've had who've made mistakes. So give me some examples of all this learning. Well... So, for example, when I was a young brand manager at P&G, a quite, well, let's say a senior brand manager at P&G, I was given the opportunity to do a very high profile launch across Europe of a major new product. Actually, it was always, which is obviously still very much part of everyday consumer goods. And I had a small team and I was very, very focused on getting the launch executed perfectly. And I was, you know, forgot about the empathy and forgot about the listening. Um, And so one day my team came into my office and um, they came to see me. They shut the door and they said, we need to talk to you. And I said, "Okay." And 
They said, you know, you come in here every day, head down, you walk straight into your office, you slam the door, you never ask us how we are, you never, you never, you know, <laughs> consult with us unless, unless you want something. And actually, we don't feel valued. And I thought, wow, what a wake up call. And, you know, of course, I could have, I could have gotten um, angry or lost my temper. But I actually realized when I reflected that they were absolutely right. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry. You're right. I'm, I've been under a lot of pressure doing this and I've passed that on to you and I need to change my behavior. And so I started listening to them. I started, you know, having more informal conversations. I started engaging more with them, building more of a, a camaraderie and putting more attention onto them as individual human beings. And it worked, right? So we had much more fun. We went on to deliver one of the most successful launches in PNG's history. And everybody was a really proud team member. So that's an example of learning from a mistake. But, that, but they but they must have been a very confident group of individuals to come to you and say that. And similarly, they must have been able to recognize that you would take on board what they said to you. Well, perhaps. I mean, PNG at that time had a very special culture where everybody was encouraged to be you know a good manager and leader of others and given that responsibility from quite a young age and so there was a real coaching culture and you were encouraged to give both positive but also negative feedback but do it in a constructive way so I think that that was the culture of the organization. Do you think that that culture still exists today? Do you think things are better that sort of scenario would be more or less likely to happen on an, in an average workplace today? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think that um, COVID has made employees become more outspoken, and there are many instances of that. So things that, that they maybe would have tolerated because everybody's been under such extreme situations and all been in the same boat, you know, people are less likely to tolerate. And they're more comfortable or bolder in articulating their needs. And part of that is, that they're seeing a lot more of their leaders because the leaders have become a lot more visible because suddenly it's very easy to do a weekly town hall with all your employees, whereas before you had to actually travel somewhere and get them in a room. And uh, and then, of course, there are, there, there are functions of technology such as chat, and people can be more emboldened to put comments on chat than they perhaps would if they were face-to-face -face with sure. somebody and they had to speak their mind. Obviously, COVID has changed leadership are you sort of su suggesting that this is for the better? I think there are many um, aspects of uh, what we, how we led in COVID that have been for the better. I think the increased empathy is one. Increased focus on listening to employees and consulting them in decisions um, about, you know, returning to work or how they wish to work is another. Obviously, um, the explosion in, 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 in flexible working and and. What it has done is educated many skeptics that actually you can be productive working remotely because people have seen, oh, they can, you know, fill in the blank, run a FTSE company or conduct a board meeting or put out a major newspaper virtually um, and, and to, to with a high degree of success. So uh, and, and of course, everybody has been in the same boat. And that's um, meant that we've seen into each other's houses. We've seen each other's children and pets. We've seen the imperfections of when, you know, your technology doesn't work and you're on mute and all of that um, bad lighting, you know, we've, and, and it's, it's emphasized everyone's humanity. And I think that that is very positive. You've written extensively about this. This is all very positive. Have there been any negatives, specifically in terms of leadership? Yeah, well, I call it the COVID conundrum, because on the one hand, we've had this 
increased humanity, empathy, employee centricity in leaders' decisions and in leaders' behaviors. Also, for many, many leaders, increased visibility, right? Their people have seen more of them than ever before, albeit virtually. The conundrum is that as we come out of COVID and indeed during COVID, despite that progress, the groups that have been hardest hit are the, you know, are the same old, same old. It's the, it's women, minorities, obviously just uh, uh, people with disabilities coming out of COVID will be uh, harder hit as uh, the return to work hits. Women have been set back, minorities have been set back. So we haven't made any progress. In fact, we've regressed in many areas, which is, um, you know, um, completely unacceptable. <laughs> okay, okay. And, is, and, and, and in terms of how a leader might deal with that and the implications for the leader? Well, you have to be very conscious about how you bring people back to work. There is no one size fits all. If you issue an edict, right, which, and we've heard leaders do this, everybody back to the office now, right? And when there have been examples of this, right? Working from home is an aberration, all that stuff. Basically, that is putting um, women, those with caring responsibilities, who are typically women, disabled people, putting them at a disadvantage because they were flourishing in many instances when they were allowed to fit their work around their life and allowed to flex their hours. And I mean by that also including blocking out hours when they needed to be, for example, homeschooling, right? So, so you have to be very conscious how you bring people back or you will end up with a less diverse workforce. And in these days, you know, employees coming out of COVID, having reflected on their values, are more likely to move on. So they'll yes. say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go work somewhere where okay. I can work how I want. So how does the modern day, the quality leader of, uh, of the 21st century deal with that? Well, you um, listen to your employees. You ask them their views. You are also very transparent about the trade-offs and the decisions that you need to make. Um, and uh, also you are, you know, you're admitting that you don't have all the answers. So you're not going to make an edict that you're going to try things and we're all going to learn this together and what works will carry on. And if something doesn't work, we'll address it. So okay. that's how you give people confidence. So this all started with me asking about uh, about something from an example of, 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 a, of a learning which you picked up early in your career. Is there anything else that you, you wish you'd known when you start that you know now? Well, I just think that it's important that you follow your values and it's important that you can identify your own values with the values of your organization. You know, I was lucky in that early in my career, I had that close identification. I think there were some instances later on in my career, the more senior I became, where there was a bit of a divergence. And that's where what creates the stress when you're not able to be your true self or, you know, who you are at work as a leader that creates stress and makes you less effective. So, so give me an example of that. I mean, for me, there were many instances where I was the first and only female on the executive committee or board. And I felt very othered and I felt very uncomfortable and was made to feel quite uncomfortable and excluded, whether consciously, as it was in some cases, or unconsciously, as it no doubt was in others. So how did you deal with that? You say you said consciously. So there were, there were occasions on which yeah. you were marginalized simply because you were a woman. And how did you deal with that? You deal with it in a variety of ways. In some cases, I called it out. 
Why did you directly in front of everyone? Absolutely directly. What happened then was what I was really signaling is okay, we've gotten to a point where our values have diverged. <laughs> and the way you know, what I value is not how you are valuing me or treating me. So I'm going to call it out. And and then, of course, a kerfuffle in, ensues and people try to gloss it over and say, why don't you just apologize? And in that particular instance, I said, well, I'm very sorry. I don't really have anything to apologize for. And then, of course, you end up leaving the organization. But the uh, the the postscript on that and the good of it is that another very high profile or senior leader observed that incident and that that senior leader later became the CEO of the organization and and they had reached out to me at the time and said you know it was really horrible the way you were treated and when they became CEO they knew they had to change the culture and I would like to think in hindsight that in a a small way I helped that CEO see that they needed to act to change the culture. Do you um, keep in contact? Do you, uh, are you still? I, I, I still have contact with some of the people in the organization because, you know, you work with people and, and many of them are very good people. I do know he took that very seriously and he worked very hard to change the culture. Was that the, the, the biggest challenge you've you faced as a leader or, or, yeah. or have there been others? No. I mean, look, there were different versions of the same thing that happened. So as I got to be a very female, uh, sorry, a very, uh, a very senior female leader, and I was the one and only female around the table, there were different versions of that same occurrence where you just feel, wow, I'm really not fitting in here. And some of it is unconscious bias and some of it is conscious bias. In the example that I gave you, I think it was conscious bias, but there have been other examples where, you know, which have been unconscious bias, uh, i.e. people haven't literally set out to exclude you because, you know, you're, you're, you don't look like them, but their behaviors do that anyway in ways that maybe they're not aware of. This has carried on into your fearlessness. This idea of being able to say exactly what you think is something which is carried through and which you, if you don't mind me saying, you, you frequently do now on a very much more public scale. Is that an important important uh, trait for a leader? Well, it's very interesting. I think increasingly business leaders are becoming more active on issues of you know social issues, societal issues. Good leaders will do that. For example, Paul Pullman, right, uh, who was one of the early advocates of, of inclusivity, has now started something called Net Positive, where he's basically saying, if you're a business leader, you have to give back more to the planet than you take. And what he's really saying is business leaders need to be responsible for solving problems, not creating problems. I agree with that. And I think we need to be honest and call it out. I've always believed that. And in fact, earlier today, I saw somebody that knew me way back when we were colleagues together at P&G and he was talking to me about me to his colleague that he was introducing me to. And he said, you know, one of the things about Anne is she has always said what she thought. (laughs) So this is somebody that I have known for, you know, over 30 years. And that's what they're saying. (laughs) Right. And and that requires great confidence. You talked about confidence earlier in the conversation as being something which a, a, a leader requires. Where do you get your confidence from? Well, you know, you get your confidence from failure. I know that sounds paradoxical. But for me, in the if I take take you back to those situations where I was the first and only female and I was being marginalized, I lost my confidence. That was very debilitating. 
And when you lose your confidence, suddenly you doubt your own decisions, you know, you doubt your judgment, uh, you don't trust yourself, you may not trust others because you're having difficulty trusting yourself. And you get it, you can get into a very negative spiral. And that happens to a lot of leaders, and they are very ineffective in the in that time period. So how so, do you drag yourself around? So I think once you realize that, what I did is I actually took a, a corporate sabbatical and I moved. I moved to the States and I helped my mom look after my dad and you know, showed my daughter the US from a high school perspective. And I just took a career break. A lot of women do, you know, they find the culture isn't right or they reach a point where they hit a certain age and people dismiss them. That happens quite a lot even now. But what I realized is when that when I did that, it was like, okay, so I failed. Okay, I've left the big corporate world. I've left the big C-suite jobs. I've moved to a town where nobody knows me and I don't and I'm not working. And then you realize, well, actually, no, I'm still the same person. I have the same capabilities. I can do the same things. It wasn't actually me. It was the situation. And you can take confidence from that because you realize, you know what? It wasn't you. It was that situation of being marginalized as an other. So is that just thinking it through or is it a time thing? Or The, the reason I ask is this. One of the other observations I have of you is that you're a prolific writer, speaker, communicator. So even in that period that you took a career break, I'm presuming you were doing all of those things as well. No, I actually, I was trying very different things. And I realized here's what I don't like. So you also, when you have that, that situation where you're thrust into a different environment and a different way of working, I started a business with my husband and I realized I don't want to, you know, work in a startup with my husband where <laughs> global HQ. Did you, did you tell him that? Or? Yeah, well, yes, absolutely. Global HQ is home and I'm, you know, going up the stairs in my PJs with my coffee cup in the morning, you know, saying welcome to Global HQ. And we're sort of shouting down the hallway at each other from our separate offices. And I realized, you know, this is really not for me. I'm an organizational animal. I need a community. You also realize who you're not. That comes from trying different things and realizing what corresponds to your values and what's important to you and what is not. Now, my husband still runs that business, and actually, he's made it very successful. He's done just fine without me. I was going to say, yes, without you, do you look back and, and wish you'd stayed there at all? No, uh-uh, absolutely not. It was the best thing for both of us and the business that I went back to do what I enjoy, and he stuck at it and turned it into something successful. Right. How long did that last? What period was that? You know, so you, you tried something different you, 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 and then you went back to what you did before because you knew you were an organizational animal. Yeah. So I, I took um, in total, let's see, it was from 2007 to 2010. So it was about three years. And were you um, able to get back into what you wanted to do? And see Yeah, that? you take, you know, what, what you also realize and, and and this also contributes to confidence when you realize almost always when you run into issues with your confidence having had previous success it's the change in your environment and it being in an unsupportive environment and that makes you know people tend to blame themselves especially women and you mustn't blame yourself for that unsupportive environment you know change your environment to a more supportive environment and that's how you'll start to be able to rebuild so you're a huge advocate for promoting more women into top jobs mm -hmm. um, how has that come about? Is that something which has come from your own experiences or is it something that you've observed independently? 
Well, both. So personally, obviously, from my own experiences, I've learned that. And, you know, by the way, earlier in my career, when I after the situation I described, went on to have another very successful uh, stint running the the, the cosmetics and skincare business at, at P&G. And I had a very gender balanced team. And we I let them all work flexibly because I was a divorced single mother by then. And I had to take my kid to school. And my general manager allowed me to do that and come to his meeting late. And that was very seminal for me. So I paid that forward to my team. And we got great results because everybody could work to their own patterns. You know, if some people like to go out clubbing, so they came in late and left late. Some people like to do sports, so they came in early and left early. So I think that from my own personal experience, when I had that authenticity, gender balance, people could be themselves. We got great results and we had a great sense of teamwork and community. Um, when I just what I described as I latterly got very senior and was the only woman that was not there that was not present and I felt very othered and lost a lot of confidence but I think the other reason that I really believe very strongly in all of this is the evidence base so the evidence base is incredibly clear whether it's from work that CMI has done whether it's work that McKinsey has done or Bain or indeed global Bloomberg and others there is so much research that shows that where you have diversity in decision making you get better results better financial results better cultural results better talent uh, attraction and retention and actually it's just as important for men as it is for women it's important for everybody so professionally as the leader of CMI, I fulfill my mission better as CEO of CMI when I champion diversity because it works. Diversity delivers. Do you think we have made much progress in the uh, in the area of, of, of helping women into more prominent roles? So the great irony is despite all the talk, there's been very little action. There's been very little progress. In 2021, 6% of FTSE CEOs are female in the UK, 8% of the S&P 500 in the United States are female, 51% of the population is female, 60% of the university graduates are female. It's actually pretty appalling progress. They're amazing statistics, aren't they? Yes. And, and you know, it's been stuck there for the last five or 10 years. And so despite all of the talk, there's very little action and we urgently need to accelerate. What will change it? Well, I think it's transparency is great in the, in, in the form of gender pay gap reporting, but what we really need is transparency with teeth. So companies need to be held to account. They need to have action plans and they need to make progress. And if they don't make progress, then there needs to be consequences, whether that's financial fines. I think increasingly there will be more consequences. People will switch employers and young people you know, will not want to work for these uh, companies. But ultimately, there's always legislation. I personally am a great believer in targets. I think business likes to achieve things voluntarily. But I think there needs to be transparency with teeth and consequences for those that don't meet those targets. I couldn't agree more. Um, this is a fantastic conversation. The final question, the one which I always ask is, what advice would you give to the graduates coming out of Nottingham Business School this year and looking forward to great careers in leadership, in particular the women graduates? Mm. So my advice is always be true to your values because that's how you'll keep that fundamental self-confidence and self-awareness. 
So be true to your values, find an environment that corresponds to your values and that makes you feel valued. And if you get into a situation where you are very unsupported and feeling very devalued, don't blame yourself, change the situation. That's fantastic. And Frankie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with former banking executive Robin Fole, the Army's chief medic Peter Homer, and sports marketing guru Charlotte Cox. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.